Good morning, everyone. In, uh, in our class today, we're going to discuss the qualifications, responsibilities of the diaconate in the local church. My plan is to spend perhaps a third or the first half of the class on the origin of the diaconate. And then lastly, go into the specifics of the work of the diaconate in the local church. So let me begin with uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us to this day, that you have provided for us through the work of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us to be reunited with you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts us and encourages us and assures us of your love for us and who gives us the power and the strength to carry forth the great commission that you have given. And we are thankful for our church body, for each and every member and uh, what they mean to the brothers and sisters here who are part of this family of God. So guide us this day as we begin our time of uh, teaching, praising, worshiping, singing, and reading your word, that it would be food for our hearts, our souls, our minds, that we may be uh, enabled to live our lives appropriately before you in the week to come. We thank you, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin with uh, Scripture, and I'd like to have two of you, if you would, the first one, read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and then another of you read chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. And use your outside voice while you're reading. And for the rest of you, we'll be in chapter 6 following this introduction. Yes. Go for it. Thank you. Someone have chapter 4? Now the full number of those who believed were one. 
heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the early church... Um, people were demonstrating that they were a unique family. And they were even cashing out their excess resources, bringing them into the church and distributing them to those who were needy, less fortunate, or who needed a blessing. And it was not only food... Uh, clothing, but it was cash. They sold property, brought the proceeds. It was, and and they were also bringing their uh, skills and abilities uh, at the same time. So in chapter six, the uh, the early church <coughs> continued to grow in numbers. And so does the conflict between the two principal cultures that represented the church. So the apostles decided that they should choose, the the people should choose seven men to resolve this conflict by taking the responsibility of the daily distribution to the widows. after this dispute became known to them. <clears throat> Apparently it was, it was significant. There were two groups principally within the burgeoning early church. There was the Greek-speaking Jews, or Hellenist as the Scripture calls them. And for our purposes that will be our first group. And these were ethnic Jews practicing Judaism, and they had largely adopted the Greek language and culture. And these Jews may have lived most of their lives outside of Judea. The Hebraic Jews, uh, the second group, uh, had not widely accepted the Greek language or the Greek culture. They were still uh, focused on uh, Hebrew and the Jewish culture that they lived in. Now, the situation <clears throat> was apparently that the, uh, the Hellenists, being considered outsiders, I guess, uh, apparently they were overlooked. So, these people were also the ones that were probably in more need because of the cultural differences that this group, it betrays a serious and highly problematic tension within the dawning uh, Christian church in Jerusalem. 
Additionally, uh, if you recall the horrific events that led to the crucifixion of Jesus, these early Christians also faced many enemies outside their emerging church. Uh, there were familial issues, social, political, and certainly religious persecution. Now, in 330 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered lands occupied by the Jewish people. And he expected the places that he conquered to adopt and love the Greek culture. And and many did. Many chose to adopt the language, the customs, and the cultures of the Greeks and became the Hellenist of Scripture. Now, widows in the ancient Near East often could not survive unless some immediate family member would provide for them. Uh, The ancient Near East is known as the cradle of civilization, uh, where if you remember your biblical history, uh, pretty much everything started in that area. The Garden of Eden, all the movements of uh, Abraham, etc. So the seven men that that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 verse 5 were Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timnon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from uh, Antioch. Now note that all these men have Greek or Hellenistic names. So the church community acts to ensure care of those outside of its original social and cultural bounds. Those who were previously marginalized, these Hellenists, they were marginalized. So they picked seven men from that cultural group. And uh, they appointed... uh, these men to be the leadership of the people who were of the same background. So the biblical record uh, briefly follows two of these original, I call them functional deacons, Stephen and is first introduced in Acts 6 and Philip in Acts 8. Well, both Stephen and Philip's giftedness and empowerments are significant, but they're not equal to that of the apostles who were supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit to be a witness for Christ in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That comes from Acts 1.8. In other words, to nurture and expand the dawning Christian church. Now, nothing is known about the personal life of Stephen, his parents, his siblings, or whether or not he had a wife or children. But what we do know is really important. He was a faithful man, and even faithful in the face of certain death. Now, Stephen was full of grace, God's grace and power, and he performed great wonders and signs among the people. At this time, Christians were being persecuted and there was stiff opposition to their teaching. But the men who argued with Stephen were no match for the wisdom given him by the Holy Spirit. 
So these men decided to falsely accuse Stephen, labeling him as a blasphemer and having him arrested. Now Acts 7, beginning in verse 2, is a record of Stephen's testimony, which is perhaps the most detailed and concise history of Israel in all of Scripture. God inspired Stephen to speak boldly, rightly accusing Israel of their failure to recognize Jesus, their Messiah, rejecting and murdering Him as they had murdered Zechariah and the other prophets and faithful men throughout their generations. Well, Stephen's speech was an indictment against Israel and their failure as the chosen people of God who had been given the law, the holy things, the promises of the Messiah. Now, naturally, these accusations, although they were true, were not well received by the Jewish elites. In his speech, Stephen reminded them of the faithful patriarch Abraham and how God had led him from the pagan land to the land of Israel where God made a covenant with Abraham. Stephen spoke of the journey of his people through Joseph's sojourn in Egypt and their deliverance by Moses 400 years later. He brought to mind how Moses had met God in the wilderness of Midian in a burning bush. He explained how God had empowered Moses to lead his people from idolatry and slavery to freedom in times of refreshing in the promised land. Throughout Stephen's speech, he repeatedly reminded them of their continuous rebellion and idolatry. In spite of the mighty works that God had done, as they were an eyewitness to. In other words, Stephen is accusing them of their own history, which only in irritated them until they didn't want to hear it anymore. So the law of Moses states that the sin of blasphemy deserves a death sentence, usually by stoning. That's in Numbers 15. Well, just before these arrogant, unredeemed Jews followed the prescribed penalty and began stoning Stephen, Acts 7, 55 and 56 records Stephen's final moments of earthly life. Just before he stepped through the veil between heaven and earth, it says, Stephen, full of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, Stephen said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's testimony still stands as a beacon, a light to a lost and a dying world, as well as an accurate history of the children of Abraham. Well, in Acts 8, we meet up with Philip, the second of the seven that is followed in Scripture. Philip is reintroduced as the first missionary in the modern sense of the term that, that's mentioned in the book of Acts. And he's the first person to be given the title of evangelist. That's in Acts 21, verse 8. Because of the persecution in Jerusalem, we're told that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. 
Now Samaria was a region of Canaan where people with the mixed Jewish and Gentile heritage lived. They were not well thought of by the Jews. And their condition was a result of the Assyrian relocation of peoples. So Acts 8 verse 7 and 8 reports that Philip's preaching of the gospel in Samaria resulted in three specific things. The casting out of unclean spirits from the possessed, the healing of the sick, and the feeling of great joy in the city. As the account goes in Acts 8, 26 through 40, the healing, an Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem to worship. As this Ethiopian leaves Jerusalem and returned to his homeland, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Today we would say that would be chapter 53, verse 7 and 8. They didn't have that at that time. So the Holy Spirit directs Philip to engage with this eunuch. And Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading. And the eunuch says, no. And he invites Philip into his chariot uh, that he was riding to explain what these words meant. So Philip explains that the sheep led to slaughter is none other than the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now from there, Philip goes on to explain how all of the scriptures point toward Jesus as the promised Messiah. And those who follow Jesus are baptized. Now this chariot was passing by some body of water at that point. So the eunuch asked Philip, well, baptize me. The eunuch had understood and believed what Philip had said about Jesus. So Philip baptizes the eunuch, and then he disappears, taken by the Holy Spirit to a city just north called Azotus. Um, Azotus is a port city in Israel. So why would Luke spend so much time on the conversion of a single man? First, the Greco-Roman world regarded Ethiopia, which lies south of Egypt, as the ends of the earth. And Luke wanted to show that the command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth was actually being accomplished. And secondly, Luke is recording the first conversion of a black man, a man who belongs to a non-Semitic ethnic group. All ethnic groups are to be included in the kingdom of God. I just use the term non-Semitic. We typically hear of that today as relating specifically to the Jewish people, but actually it dates from the 18th century uh, when philologists began to realize the notion of families of cognate languages. And there was a paper published on on an essay of biblical and oriental literature and from the, in that paper, they had determined that from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates and from the Mesopotamia down to Arabia, that predominantly one language uh, reigned in that area. So the Syrians, Babylonians, Hebrews, Arabs, and Phoenicians were of this same language group, forevermore referred to as Semites. Third, Semite is not in Scripture. That's why I explained it. Third, this eunuch 
is the first example of a God-fearing person coming to believe in Jesus. Now, God-fearers were excluded from becoming full Jews. But in Jesus' church, they're not excluded. Some Gentiles completely joined the Jewish religion, forsaking that of their forefathers, and were called proselytes. Now, these people often lived in Israel and tried very hard to keep the law and meet the requirements, including allegiance to Israel, following the Hebrew personal and social customs of circumcision, prayer, synagogue attendance, and sabbatical worship. Now, they were more acceptable by the Jews than other people, but they were not full members of the Jewish community. Other Gentiles abandoned polytheism and came, and came to Judaism, which is monotheistic. They took on some of the characteristics of Judaism, but not all. And these were known as God-fearers. This term is not in the Scripture either. So these individuals were also more likely to be favorably viewed than Gentiles as a whole who were just pagans. This Ethiopian would have been a God-fearer. Well, now, to wrap up these narratives, uh, Philip continues his missionary work up the coast of Judea and Samaria until he reaches uh, Caesarea where he resides for at least 20 years. Now, the last time we hear of Philip is in Acts 21, verse 8 and following, where we're at Philip's house in Caesarea with a group that includes the Apostle Paul. And, and Philip has four daughters, it tells us, who prophesied. Now, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and he took Paul the Apostle's belt from him. And the prophet bound his own hands and his feet, saying, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and then deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. So you know the rest of the story on Paul the Apostle. Well, that's the last we hear of Philip. In Scripture. And those are the two individuals who were of the original seven chosen to be what I call these functional deacons. So that brings us up to current day. Uh, so now we're going to talk about the qualifications for a deacon. And to start that off, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through 13. It's a, it's a follow-on from seven verses that illustrate the requirements for a, an elder. So it begins with deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So from this point on, I've basically given you in your handout uh, everything that I had planned to say because I wanted you to have the details. Didn't want you to have to take notes on this stuff. So we can now begin an exchange of question and answer as we go through these. So if you have something that comes to mind, um, please bring it up. So as we've read, the office of deacon is set forth in Scripture. It's ordinary and it's perpetual in the church. So the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service after the example of Christ. Those chosen individuals who are faithful and diligent Christians who have good character, honest repute, exemplary life, brotherly love, sympathetic nature, and sound judgment uh, who are basically qualified under the Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. A nominated deacon should be a member in good standing of the congregation, actively sharing and worship service of the church and giving particular emphasis to the duties of his office. Now, this is not part of the 13-week leadership class that we plan to begin in June 12. Uh, This is a precursor to that. Next week uh, will be the same sort of Um, review of the elder. So today we're going to talk about deacon. And this is all part of our associate reform, Presbyterian form of government uh, as well, which duplicates what is said in Scripture and uh, adds a few words of wisdom in addition to that. So, the purpose and responsibility is the diaconate at Christ Covenant Church. Uh, I'm assuming that you do not know the specifics of what the diaconate does. <clears throat> and I've tried to put in, uh, with some degree of clarity, what these unique points are. Um, if you're following along, we're at the purpose and responsibility of the diacon at Christ Covenant Church. I'm not sure what page that is, but so a healthy church is one where the session is devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer, keeping watch over the souls of the people that God has entrusted to us. And we do this as those who will have to give an account for our own lives and how we 
shepherded the people that God has given us. So the diaconate in their office of service exists to care for the tangible material deficits in the members of Christ's covenant church so that the session can remain focused on their task. Which is to lead the church, cast a vision, making decisions for the glory of God and for the good of people. And the diaconate serves as the agent of the session, reinforcing the decisions of the session and facilitating and realizing the vision through the respective leadership skills that they bring to bear on any and all means available for the glory of God and for the good of the people. So, to that end, we begin looking at some of the specifics. First one being benevolence. So, the the diaconate, again, is responsible to bless all of the people of the congregation with things that would be covered under the term mercy ministry. Specifically, 1A is to care for the and provide tangible material blessings, comfort and relational support for individuals and families within the church family. Additional to this, uh, just recently the diaconate determined to initiate a proactive outreach, principally to widows, widowers, 60 plus aged members, members of life-threatening illness, and physically challenged members of any age. And I'll go through that in detail later uh, with Appendix A, which is on the last page of this document, but for now just keep in mind that we'll come back to that. So the members of the congregation will be, are given the uh, first priority for the work of the diaconate. It doesn't preclude their working with people who are not members of the church, or members of any church for that matter. Um, as, as the need arises uh, that we're aware of, and provided sufficient funds are available and resources to execute um, outreach to non-members, we will gladly do that. And each interaction with a member or a non-member that the diaconate interacts with is, of course, confidential. It's handled with great anonymity. So the, the, the deacons are, are uh, allocated to different zones of function within the diaconate. So the deacon that's in charge of benevolence uh, stays in close communication with the session and uh, thereby picking up uh, vibes of who in the various shepherding groups might need uh, a blessing. And also uh, the members at large can tap deacons on the shoulder and say, hey, do you know brother or sister is having this issue and you might want to give them a call? 
that's another way that we can better cover the congregation with whatever they need to be blessed with. So please be, uh, participate in that. If you know of a member who is in distress or, or has a need, they're sick, they can't mow their lawn or trim their hedges or something like that, please let a deacon know that. Otherwise, it will go unnoticed. Yes, Kyle. Quickly as I can, if you can repeat this for the recording, it's also important that the membership knows that they can reach out to the deacons and ask for help, which is probably the hardest thing to do. But as a covenant community, we should be quick to ask for the help and provide opportunities for others to bless us, even as we do. Exactly. In our covenanter that every one of you get every week, there is a couple of toggle buttons down there. One is for a prayer request, which goes to every elder only. The second button is for the diaconate. At any time, day or night, 24-7, you can tap that button, enter in the circumstance you see yourself in, and the sirens and the red lights will come to your aid. <clears throat> Pardon the fire department euphemism. How many deacons do you have? We have uh, five. Well, that would be great. Uh, we're, we recognize that we can use additional help in that area, as well as the elder board, uh, which is why we're launching this next series of teaching, uh, training. So, yes, uh, I have not personally heard of a ratio uh, there may be one, but it would depend to some degree on the congregation, I would imagine. Um, part of the thing, I think, with the number being less is the growth that came you know, pretty quickly and yep. then trying to get the training session. Yeah, we're. Uh, We did have to change our track shoes as the as the congregation has grown so rapidly. There may be, but I'm not aware of it. Yes, but just to kind of reinforce what you're saying, yes, there is plenty to do, and we could do more with more seats on the bus, I guess you could say. But that is 
brings up another point too. I guess it starts with members, and I think Kyle, with his um, comment before, was that you know we as members we may not need to reach a deacon or whatever. It's something that we could do in service to one another. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good segue into our next point, which is stewardship. Now, a lot of people, when they think about stewardship, they think about, you know, am I tithing? You know, am I giving my portion? But that's not what it's all about. Our very life is on loan from Christ, and He's given us our lives to steward for His glory and for our good. And God also desires for us to take care of our own nuclear family in 1 Timothy 5.8 in our church, in Galatians 6 and Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5. And to those that are in need. Uh, that comes from Matthew 25. So, as a devoted steward of God's resources, we need to manage them in such a way that we can provide for the needs of others. It can include monetary gifts, food, clothing, automobiles, or just be hospitable with what you have. So here at Christ's Covenant there are numerous ways that each and every person can steward the resources that God has given them. Such as volunteering in the nursery the kitchen or the food pantry and an occasional financial crisis that some church family may face. So part of the diaconate is to encourage this level of stewardship among the members of the congregation. Encouraging tithing in particular. But did you generally just to be liberal and hospitable toward others even if it's nothing more than a smile and a kind word. That goes a long way, uh, particularly with so many new people coming into our church. So the diaconate and the session, of course, plan uh, what we think the Lord is leading us to do. And the diaconate is tasked to help Put that into reality. So the weekly duties are the counting, recording, and depositing of the tithes and offerings. Counting the attendance, morning and evening service. They also approve and sign the checks for all the payments made from the church revenues. Uh, on a monthly basis, the diaconate will review the financial statements for the previous month. 
Those are provided by our accountant. Um, there are 125 or so accounts on this financial statement. So there are a lot of them. And you, of course, re review and approve the budget annually. So all of the items that are on the budget that you approve on an annual basis are reviewed monthly by the diaconate to ensure that we're uh, staying uh, in the confines of what was allocated for each given uh, area of expenditure. And then yearly, um, we do the budget, the diaconate does the budgeting, which is going on right now. Uh, in the next few weeks, you'll be called to a um, a meeting where the budget will be presented to you for the coming year. <clears throat> so the diaconate and the session uh, jointly put that together and um, tries to make sense of it and provides you with the visual and numerical detail that uh, hopefully gives you a clear vision of, of what the money is being spent for. But the diaconate, uh, one of their major responsibilities is to make sure that those funds are being uh, spent according to the budget. They also, the diaconate is also responsible for the general property, uh, both real and personal property of the congregation. And if something comes up that requires an extraordinary expenditure, uh, like this fellowship hall or the parking lot or a new sanctuary, then that has to be proposed to the congregation, uh, explained, uh, and there has to be congreg congregational consent before those things can be initiated. Uh, the diaconate is also responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of the entire existing facility, all of the property and the grounds uh, within the confines of our, our plot line. And they physically don't do those things, but uh, we, we have to hire some of that done. We have a sextant. <clears throat> for this church and that sextant has a job description and has specific duties delineated on it. Uh, those duties are uh, monitored uh, regularly. Uh, sometimes there are additional duties are added, some are taken away. But in any case the diaconate's job is to make sure that the facility is well maintained clean and appropriate for uh, each activity that goes on here at the church. Um, this obviously includes the HVAC system, heat ventilation, air conditioning, plumbing, electrical, you know, the whole 
turnkey facility is the responsibility of the diaconate. Any questions on that? We're okay. All right, risk and security. Uh, we, we obviously have insurance for the facility and for the staff uh, who we pay to uh, do various things. And that insurance coverage has to be monitored uh, with respect to additions that are made, changes that are made, both to personnel and facility uh, to make sure that it is adequate and the diaconate works with our insurance carrier to assure that we uh, stay in a safe zone there. Uh, secondly, we have a child protection policy uh, and all prospective volunteers interested in ministry that involves working with children, youth, or disabled adults are required to complete and sign a background verification release form authorizing the church to conduct a criminal background check for safe hiring solutions or whatever other firm the insurance company may require us to engage with. So the diaconate um, follows up with each teaching area, each volunteer to make sure that they have completed this kind of documentation to ensure the safety of our children and those who can't look out for themselves. Uh, also, we have a security plan uh, for the events of the church and the diaconate is uh, responsible for ensuring that that the church is buttoned up after these events and that uh, doors are not left open. Uh, our security team also is tasked with this as well. And we also maintain an imminent threat response plan, which is reviewed um, at least annually. Um, this would be like fire, uh, intrusion of uh, undesirable people, um, you know, bomb threats, all those kinds of things you might anticipate would be uh, present in a society like we live in. Number four, worship services. Uh, Running the soundboard for both morning and evening service. Uh, and we have a lot of wireless mics. I have one on at this point. Uh, to make sure they're all in working, good working order and that their batteries are fresh. Uh, each sermon and Sunday school teaching are recorded and posted on to sermonaudio.com every week. Um, the diaconate recruits and trains adequate numbers of ushers uh, to assist worshipers in available seats for the collection of tithes and offerings and ensure that the sanctuary is returned to a, uh, an orderly state at the end of each service. Uh, the diaconate uh, 
also is responsible for preparing and the distribution of the monthly Lord's Supper. And that the various other uh, articles used in worship are in their proper location. Now we have a, a facility team here who's one deacon is on that uh, facility team, but it's, it's a team of people who have expertise in the various aspects of construction, uh, both design and build arenas. And this team is appointed by the session uh, to create the drawings uh, through the use of an architect uh, that puts the vision of the session on paper for you to see for expansions that are we feel is necessary for this facility to continue to function appropriately in our place that we're put here. Um, and they're also responsible for specifying and implementing any significant upgrades or improvements to, the, to this facility. Um, the diaconate is not responsible for those things related to the facility team, but uh, specifically for the maintain, maintenance of the existing facilities. Yes, the facility team. That would be the jurisdiction of, of the facility team. Yes. Okay, I don't know a great deal about it, but this is what I do know. Uh, the building that was proposed... Uh, extends closer to Jefferson Road than the current uh, regulations require. So the facility team and the architects had to go before the board of the city of Greensboro and get approval to invade that territory that previously was verboten. And that was uh, granted to us. So that hurdle is now done. And so far as I know, there are some final tweaks and amendments to the drawings. And uh, hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, there'll be more clarity and definition to where that stands. Yes. Yeah. It, it's still on track for the original presentation from several years ago. Um, there, of course, have been uh, some minor 
additions and adjustments to the design that was originally thought out, uh, which is a good thing. So meetings and communications. The diaconate uh, will select a chairman and a secretary from among its number, and they keep minutes of their meeting and submit that to the session every month. Uh, the diaconate has one meeting a month, uh, possibly more, but the meeting is the second Monday night of each month. Um, the chairman of the diaconate could be called to the session to report on uh, specific diaconate proceedings that, that needed some closer attention. And then every quarter, we have, we have a joint session diaconate meeting. Now in this meeting, <clears throat> we of course have food and fellowship and pray for each other and for the church at large. But it's an opportunity to uh, maintain a spirit of brotherhood, fellowship, and uh, maintain good relational uh, presence with each and every deacon and elder. Uh, and it, it makes the officers of the church run much more smoothly when you have some uh, specific event like we have every quarter uh, and there's one next week. Uh, it, it brings harmony to the officer of the church. Not that there's disharmony, but as you all know, if you maintain relational fellowship with people, you have a really good working relationship uh, at all levels. So it's important that that sort of thing happens. Okay, the relationship to the session, uh, the diaconate uh, is a board that is under the supervision and authority of the session. And uh, that's the way they function. Now let's go to the last page, Benevolence Appendix A. <clears throat> this is the the thing that I mentioned earlier that's new, that the diaconate is going to uh, invest time in. Um, with more deacons, we could invest more time in this, but uh, this is what our hope is. So one of the Christ Covenant Church deacons will phone those principally that I identified earlier uh, for an in-home visit to have prayer and a devotion. Again, this is a relational thing. Now, if that member wishes to take advantage of the many resources available as a result of this visit, um, the deacon then will take a look at these issues and uh, prioritize them and then we go to the planning stage. But before we go there, there may be no material issues that require attention. 
Even so, the diaconate is resolute in their mission to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ as the Scriptures call them to do. So, relational, uh, very relationally impoverished people. Not that any of our people would fit in that category, but uh, some of our folks do not get a, an in-home visit from very many people. Okay, moving on to the planning. Well, let's go down to the bottom. Scope of inspections. Now, these, there are some bullets here. There are a lot of them. And this is not an exhaustive listing. There could be other conditions found that, that may be considered as well. But just to give you an idea of the kind of uh, the kind of blessing that could be afforded you uh, is you know generally listed in these bullets. Uh, and again, there could be other things that aren't listed that would be considered as well. So for those of you who fit into the category that uh, I indicated earlier, these are some of the things that. Um, you may want to think about. So uh, you don't have to wait for a deacon to call you. You can, uh, if you know who your deacon is, uh, you can pick up the phone or you can tap that toggle button on the covenanter and say, you know, <clears throat> in my kitchen, uh, my stuff in my cabinet is just not arranged in a way that is easy for me to reach and to get to and to use. Great. We have people in this congregation who would love to come out and help organize that in a way that would allow you to access these things in a more appropriate way. Um, furniture arrangement. You walking through your house and you keep running into things and you know this room needs to be rearranged or reorganized. It's, there's trip hazards here. I may fall and wind up in the hospital. Well, call push the button, deacon, I need help. And there, you know, we have a lot of strong young men here and people who know how to organize furniture and rooms to provide you with a safe through affair to make your life more comfortable to you. So I'm, this list is just to give you ideas of what is possible. And these are the things that we need to be doing. Uh, you know, do you have handrails in your shower? Prevent you from falling. So, our um, our congregation could, no doubt. Now, the young folks who have a husband at home. Uh, you may get some attention, but the, the older group 
the widows, uh, they're going to get priority for these kinds of things because um, if they made a honeydew list, there's no honey there to do it. Okay, that is pretty much what I wanted to convey to you today. Yes, Chris. Yes. This is uh, this is the the software that uh, the church uses. <clears throat> when when members come here, uh, they fill out a sheet of paper that gives us a lot of information about them, and they also indicate the things that they have skills and abilities to do. Like I'm an electrician, or I'm a plumber or I'm an interior designer, or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm a great Sunday school teacher, you know, all kinds of things that people put on there, and we put all that in a database. Okay, when the deacon goes out and uh, finds these things that need to be taken care of, uh, in the planning stage he goes into this Breeze database, pulls that thing for all these people that said they know how to do this stuff then he, he's going to contact that person and say, okay, this is what we have. Uh, do you have that skill and time to put into it? And uh, the deacon is basically becoming the, they're acting as a leadership planning coordinator. They're not physically coming out and taking, I mean, they can take the wrenches and do whatever needs to be done. <clears throat> but primarily, their job would be to engage the entire congregation who has skills and abilities to bring to bear. You know, it kind of puts you in mind of what the, uh, the dawning early church was doing. You know, they brought what they had to distribute to the poor. So, we as a congregation are bringing our skills, abilities, talents, resources to bear for our brothers and sisters who are in, who can use it. Yep, so that's what the planning stage is. And then the execution stage, again, is providing leadership um, to get the necessary people on site to do the work that needs to be done. And the deacon may supervise it himself, or he may identify a lead man uh, on for the on-site activities of that given day. Can I follow up with one other thing? Yeah. Um, if you learn a new skill, is there any way to input your new abilities or let's say you know your teenage son says, I can mow lawns now. Or you say, my teenage son can mow lawns now. You know, what is the access there? Is it only when people join the church or is there an ongoing process to be able to keep that person? I'm going to direct you to uh, an individual of the same name as you, Chris. Uh, right now, he is the one who can input that data. Uh, there may be other people, but he'll know who that is. Yes, Jim. Uh, I think Christ of the Covenant sponsors a benevolence fund mm -hmm. so that you can make contributions to that to help with these kinds of say, repairs that might have cost. Yep. Yep. And, and if there is, uh, you know, if, if, it's, if it becomes knowledge to the diaconate that 
there is a uh, potentially a catastrophic situation that needs to be addressed readily. Um, we may come to, to the congregation and say we need, we have a, a member who has uh, this situation and it's, it's really important that it is be fixed immediately. They don't have the resources to do it. Would you be willing to contribute some toward that effort? Yep, that's how that would be handled. Yep, it goes to our accountant, uh, Eric Ostertag, and he puts it into the benevolence account, which makes it available for the deacons to write checks on. Is that a certain amount of what is in tithing given each month? There is an amount of money that is automatically funding that account. But there are times when we have uh, larger expenditures that we didn't anticipate, and we may need some additional funds from the from the congregation. Well, uh, that brings up a question. Maybe I'm, you know, when I, I write my check mm-hmm. No, we we have we have predetermined percentages that are moved into these other accounts. He knows what to do with it. He knows what to do with it. Now, there 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 would be a situation where you want that directed to a given project. You, if you put that on the the line, then he would see that, and that's where it would go to that account that's related to that project. But otherwise, it would be tithes and offerings, which is a general account, um, you know, and you know, salaries and electric bills, and you know, all that stuff comes out of that. Yes, it does. Yep. Um, everything, everything on the budget. Um, comes out of that category. It's kind of like tax, you know, we pay to the federal government. They take it and disperse it. <clears throat> and we don't necessarily get to approve the budget, but we do here. Other questions, comments? Yes? I'm not a woman's liver, but I'm interested though, I know the elders from the church are men. Is there anything that in the church that does that all the deacons will be men or not including women? I know the women do most of the work there, but I'm curious whether there's something that says that they should be involved. Uh, this church uh, has determined that they will all be men. Uh, frequently, uh, when deacons go to visit members, their wife will go with them or a second deacon or they may choose another individual from the congregation to go with. They won't come alone. Um, and most of us have, we know our elders, 
Yeah. But do we know our deacons, or is there a, way of, is there a special deacon that's assigned to? There is. How do we know that individual, or that if we just have a need? Ask, ask your elder who that is. But the, uh, elders and deacons are paired. Now, it also works that <clears throat> as an elder, I frequently engage with people who are not in my group. Deacons would do the same thing. But we do have specific uh, shepherding groups and there are an elder and a deacon is paired up for that shepherding group. Good question. Anything else? Okay, we're running late. Uh, but there's only a crowd out there, so not to worry. Um, June 12th, uh, we're starting a, uh, a leadership training class. And if, if, you, you know, if you've been here for a year and you're a man and you sense the faintest spark in the depths and the recesses of your soul that the Lord is calling you to be an officer in the church. Uh, you can self-nominate yourself uh, to go to this, this leadership class. It's, uh, uh, you're not required to have a wife. Uh, but if you do have a wife, you can only have one. <clears throat> and you can't drink more than uh, three or four bottles of wine a day or something like that. And, you know, a decent sort of guy, which I'm sure all of you are. So if you sense that spark, I mean, it may be faint, but um, don't ignore it. It will, you know, the Holy Spirit is in you, and He's uh, the Lord of the conscience, and you'll forever remember that, you know, I probably should have, I didn't, and, you know, that sort of thing. So, prayerfully consider whether or not the Lord is calling you to be an officer in the church. And you don't have to decide, I want to be a deacon, I want to be an elder. Training is the same for both. <clears throat> it's uh, 13 weeks. It's intensive. It's uh, uh, broad, deep, and wide in scope. And you'll enjoy it. And uh, some parts of it will probably be challenging and overwhelming, but that's okay. Nobody knows everything. Any other questions? I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we are so enamored with your love and care for us as your children. We worship you and praise you and glorify your name and seek to live our lives in a way that would be pleasing and honoring not only to you, but to our own credibility, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our fellow church members. 
we thank you for this opportunity to, to meet together and to worship and to praise your holy name and look forward to what you have in store for us in the coming hour, hour and a half. So thank you, Father, for your kindness to us, and we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.